What I would like to speak about this evening is a theme that uh, I think is not so frequently addressed, at least in my experience in these situations, and one which is rather important, I feel. It's a theme of spiritual joy. And in some ways, Buddhism, Buddhist teaching, gets a little bit of bad press in this realm because there seems to be, at least at a sort of surface view or from a surface position, rather an incredible emphasis upon, upon suffering, upon unsatisfactoriness, upon the, the difficulties, the problems and the various um, efforts, heroic and otherwise, which we're going to have to make to overcome or attend to them. And we, quite, we might quite reasonably and quite justifiably ask ourselves the question, where is the joy in all of this? We might have seen images or pictures or even met various Buddhist masters and we often notice just how stern and serious they look. And in fact, in Thailand it's regarded as um, rather bad form for a monk to be seen smiling. In other traditions, however, the um, Hindu Advaita Vedanta tradition of India and the Sufi traditions of the Taoists, we tend to see these rather cheerful, smiling faces with broad grins and hearty laughter. And we, we find it rather attractive. Looking around us in the meditation retreat, it sometimes occurs to us. We see these serious, downcast faces, eyes carefully shielded, from contact with anyone else. And we, we sort of, we come to the conclusion that the, these people we're with are obviously deep in the contemplation or the experience of suffering, of unsatisfactoriness. Yes, it really is bad, isn't it? But at least we're all in it together. There was a, um, a friend of mine recently mentioned to me um, something a teacher in America said to her, and I uh, found it resonated in this context. And this teacher said to her that if you take this uh, Eastern meditation practice of mindfulness, of breathing, and you add to it a Westerner's low self-esteem, then what do you get? Concentration camp. And sometimes what we see is that we're trying so hard to focus, to be present, to connect, and we're giving ourselves such a hard time because of the fact that our mind doesn't do that when we tell it to, or in the way that we want it to, that we somehow seem to be making our practice into something that equates to a misery, that certainly at times feels like there is a, a rather serious and concerning lack of joy for us. And joy is something that we yearn for, something that in our hearts we, we find ourselves deeply moved to seek, to discover, and yet at the same time, we also perhaps question rather deeply, is this possible for us? And we often take the view that joy is something we must postpone, that we must put it off until the end of the path, until we've done all our work, until we've completed our heroic efforts. But in fact, joy is not just the end or the culmination of the path, not only found at the destination, if there was such a thing. But equally, and more importantly perhaps, joy is very much part of our path, part of our practice. 
And it's important to explore and to understand what are the conditions through which joy arises. How do we develop and cultivate this quality of being? And it's important to understand in this context that joy, and when we speak of spiritual joy, it's not just an emotion or a state of mind which is perhaps how we often use it, a particularly bright and exuberant and enthused state of, uh, of mind or emotion that we maybe are familiar with or wished we were. It's actually, more perhaps importantly in this context, a quality of mind. Rather than just an experience that comes and goes, it's actually a quality of mind. And it's a quality of mind which is actually very beneficial and very powerful in our practice and in our lives. I was uh, sitting a a retreat in America uh, two or three years ago and uh, a tape talk was played by one of the teachers from Burma, Sayadaw Upandita, who's uh, well known and loved in the uh, the insight meditation tradition, though also rather respected and perhaps even for a degree of ferociousness which he is reputed to have. And uh, he's sort of very much associated with the school of working very hard in practice, trying very hard, being deadly serious in every moment. And in this talk he spoke about the importance of cultivating joy. I was quite struck, actually surprised, I have to confess, having heard of him and known him by reputation only though. But he, he spoke about the significance and the importance of cultivating joy in our practice. And this from, this from a meditation master who people it's reported are sort of trembling in anxiety before they go into the interview for five minutes with him. As Westerners, we have a very strong tendency to focus, to concentrate and to dwell upon the negative. We can see it expressed in the obsession of our media with what is essentially bad news. And we lap it up. We look forward to more of it. We turn on the televisions, we buy the newspapers, knowing that essentially what they're telling us is bad news. It's all the sadness, all the suffering, all the problems, the failures and the miseries that are around us in the world. And we might stop and ask, we might stop and wonder, perhaps, why is it that the newspapers don't report all the acts of kindness, of generosity and compassion that are engaged in every day across this planet? Why is it that they seem to only report the atrocity, the inhumanity, the corruption and the exploitation? There's something in us which is looking for that, which is actually wanting to hear about that for some sad and rather perverse reason. And we have this inner obsession with with what is wrong with me, what is wrong with life, what I have to do to fix it all, to fix myself. And we, we often express this, or we, we, we seek a certain confirmation of this externally through the kind of dialogues we engage in, through the kind of information we seek out and we attend to. This focus and this obsession with what is wrong, with what the problem is, with ourselves or others. So I was reading in a magazine article um, several months ago, a excerpt from an address given by Kurt Vonnegut, the uh, author, to the Massachusetts Institute of Technology commencement, uh, which is, I think, 
for our term, or for me at least, equates to a graduation ceremony, I believe, the um, commencement uh, ceremony. And he was giving some various pieces of advice to the students having completed their degrees. And the one that I remember that struck me rather um, sharply was, and he commented or suggested that they remember all the compliments that you receive, he said. Forget all the insults. If you manage to do this, he said, tell me how. And we might see that there's a certain wisdom in that, but it's not something that comes easy to us. If we receive from someone an expression of some appreciation and a criticism in the same sentence, what's the piece we take home with us? What's the piece we remember, we think about? Most of the people I talk to, it seems to be that it's actually the negative piece that registers, that sticks somehow. And so we can look at whether perhaps we have taken an unbalanced response to our experience in terms of what we attend to, in terms of what we focus on. Because our experience of the world and our lives is shaped significantly by what we attend to. What we give the importance to of our attention, which brings energy, which brings focus, what we give that attention to has significance. And what we dwell upon, what we focus upon, can both be of benefit to us and also of detriment. And so, going back to the the piece of uh, the suggestion by Sayadaw Upandita to cultivate joy, he spoke of a number of pieces, number of possibilities that we could explore for ourselves, that we might do well to look at. And in terms of the tradition, the ways of cultivating, of connecting with a sense of joy in life, what might that be? What might that be? What would it be to reflect on our own good qualities? To reflect on those aspects of our being that have and do and will contribute to the welfare of others, to our own welfare. To actually acknowledge them, to honour them. Not to sort of seek to inflate our ego or to say, wow, I'm really great, aren't I? And blow it all up with sort of pride but actually to acknowledge and to honour that we do have good qualities. We do have beneficial capacities within us that we have brought into this world at times. And not needing to get into measuring how much of this and how much of that and was it more than all the bad ones and having to weigh it up, but just honouring when we find them, when we meet them in our lives. That place in in the meal queue where we actually realised that the food might be running a bit low on the thing we were particularly fond of and we didn't take quite so much as we would have really liked to so that those behind us may have had a little more. And just a genuine expression of generosity, of letting go. In a simple moment, to acknowledge such experience as part of our truth, to honour that, can bring us a deep sense of inner warmth and joy. And, And the actions that come from those good qualities our our worthy actions, our actions of kindness, of generosity, of compassion, of patience and tolerance, of forbearance. All of these actions that we bring into the world, coming from those good qualities, which we have and do continue to bring, 
into the world. These are described of, or were described of by, described by the Buddha, as being our true possessions, because the the, the flow-on effect from those actions which contribute to the welfare of others and the genuine welfare of our own being, these actions are our true possessions because their effects carry on with us in our life, although the physical and material possessions are left behind. And so again, we can, we can take a degree of, of joy, of happiness, in honouring and recognising our own good actions. Those things we have done, in our life and will do in our life that are beneficial, that are wholesome. And we can also reflect upon our practice, upon our on our willingness to engage in this difficult and challenging practice. And here we are, after almost four days of sitting in silence, walking in silence, facing the bare and sometimes stark facts of our existence moment after moment after moment. And we know that it's not easy, and yet we're still here. And we can honour that. We can appreciate that, even if it's difficult. We can honour and appreciate the insights, the understandings that have come from it. Maybe they weren't sort of earth-shattering, multicoloured, psychological sort of paranormal experiences. But maybe that's not the point anyway. Even just those moments where we understood something, where we connected with something, we can honour them. Again, without trying to blow them up or make something extra special of them, without using them as a way of comparing ourselves to another and elevating ourselves. But just honouring, just acknowledging this part of our truth equally as the times of confusion, the times of reactivity and the times in which we, we feel that we fail to honour our integrity and our good intentions, when we forget and lose sight of what is truly important to us. And with these reflections, we can also reflect on our good fortune. There's a whole sutta, a whole uh, discourse given by the Buddha called the Mangala Sutta, the Sutta of Blessings. To reflect on our blessings, again, is to connect with what is a potential wellspring of joy for us, of happiness, of appreciation. That we, we simply have the material things we need. The food, the warmth, the shelter, the water. We have these things. We easily take them for granted, but most of the world, most of the world, our brothers and sisters on this planet do not have that luxury of taking these for granted. And we can, we can feel compassion for them, but we can equally and also feel gladness and joy and happiness for the fact that we are blessed in this way with the simple material things we need even for just this day. That we have friends around us. We have support. We have sangha here in this community. People who are willing to come and practice with us to sit and walk through these long hours. And we can appreciate that. We can, we can appreciate the fact of our human birth that we've taken form in this amazing and miraculous way, with a body, with a mind, with this incredible consciousness which we explore the mysteries of in each moment. And, and not only have we taken this birth as a human being, but that we come into this world, and of all the people in this world, it is not many who have the opportunity to hear the teachings of liberation, the Dharma of wisdom and compassion. 
It is not many who have this privilege, this blessing. And of those who have the opportunity to hear it, even fewer have the opportunity to practice it, as we are doing here. And and that we have this opportunity to hear, to practice the Dharma, the Dharma of liberation, of wisdom and compassion. To not just to practice it, but to realize it, to understand it, to make it real in our lives. This is an incredible blessing, even understood as that potentiality. This is an incredible blessing. And again, just reflecting on it, not making a sort of a a long story about how great it is and how wonderful I must be to have received it, but just honouring the simple truth of our being here and the possibilities that our being here offers to us. These reflections that we can just sometimes touch into, just connect with, perhaps spontaneously arising or perhaps directing our mind on occasion just briefly to reflecting on these things which can bring joy. They really bring a degree of moisture, of warmth and of, and of softness to our practice and to our relationship to ourselves. Finding a sense of joy in our life is not so far away. And we can also reflect on the good fortune and the happiness of others. We can reflect on the qualities, the actions and the insights of other people. And if we've had the, had the good fortune to spend some time with sort of some of the, the wonderful people of this world, people who've committed their lives to serving others, to caring for their welfare, and the, the light and the warmth that comes that is shed and radiated from such people, whether they be famous names or just simple, quiet people living their lives with genuine kindness. There's a way in which we can equally take joy in that. We can take joy in other people's good qualities and capacities and actions. And, and this, is, this is known in the tradition as murita, as appreciative joy, spiritual joy, where we can actually take joy in another person's well-being, and happiness. So rather than relating to the achievements and the qualities of others as we often do through a sense of sort of grudging sort of acknowledgement or perhaps even envy or jealousy in some way feeling that um, if they've got all these good things then we must be going to end up with less. Seeing that it's not like that. That actually through appreciating other people's good qualities and good actions and good fortune we can actually also bring joy to ourselves. And it's perhaps most easily noticeable with those we care for and love deeply and how we can really feel some joy when something wonderful happens to them when they receive something lovely and how that actually it, it rather sort of greatly in, increases the opportunities for connecting with a sense of joy when we can find a sense of joy in other people's good fortune as well as our own so that with these reflections with these taking this opportunity, this possibility of connecting with those aspects of our life and the life of people around us that does touch our hearts with joy, with, with, a sense of, with a sense of light, happy appreciation. There's, it's very much about finding a balance. It's not about denying the negative, the difficult and the painful. Not about pushing that out of our consciousness at all. But it's equally that our practice is not about exclusively focusing on the negative and denying or disregarding that 
which is more beautiful, more sweet and more lovely. So that what we, what we see is that when we focus, when we focus on the negative, on the, on the sadness, the greed, the anger, the ignorance, that appears in others, that appears in ourselves. If we focus exclusively on this, we very easily find ourselves starting to sink into despair, starting to sink into hopelessness, or, or starting to feel like this is really a battle, or starting to feel like the enemy's out there and I'm going to have to fight for my very survival. And we see how that comes out in our practice when we're striving and struggling and making, in a way, our very own being sometimes the enemy in the process. And so, when we when we give attention to when we give attention to the positive, we give attention to those acts of kindness, of generosity, the expressions of wisdom in action that are around us. It actually brings a sense of hope. It brings a sense of possibilities. We we have a sense of, gosh, yes, these things are not outside of my experience. And perhaps generosity is only a, an occasional visitor, and one might sense the potential for it to be actually a much more familiar companion in one's life. But that one honours nonetheless what is there. And whatever it might be for each of us, there are those qualities there that we can and do need to acknowledge, to honour and to appreciate. It's as though we could write our own good news newspaper where we actually make equal space in our life for that, that part of the totality. And the other quality that comes from this reflection and connecting with the good and the, the positive aspect of ourselves and others is that this is, the, this is the proximate cause, this is the closest condition that gives the most support to the arising of metta, of loving-kindness. And as we were doing in the loving-kindness meditation yesterday, and perhaps continuing to bring that in, in ways into our practice, that the arising of loving-kindness is understood to be most directly related to the recognition of and the appreciation of the good qualities in another, the good qualities in ourselves. And so, in cultivating that quality of loving-kindness, of deepening in that capacity of genuine caring and friendship for all of life, others and ourselves, making space for appreciation, reflecting on those things we value. This is an important part of our practice. And in connecting with that loving-kindness, connecting with that caring, we, we actually find a deeper sense of connection in life itself. A deeper sense of relatedness and intimacy that comes when we have a balance. When we acknowledge the difficulty and the realms where some attention is seriously needed. But equally, we acknowledge the rest of our life where that is not the case. And the rest of the life around us. And nonetheless, even having heard this and perhaps even understanding this, we find it sometimes almost rather hard, rather difficult to acknowledge and to speak about those positive aspects of ourselves. 
And in spiritual circles, there's almost a sort of a, a feeling that what we're supposed to talk about is our limitations, our problems, and our deficiencies. And it's rare to hear someone speaking in an interview of their positive qualities, of the things they appreciate in themselves. It's as though these are almost taken for granted and dismissed. And that what the real work is, is the problems, the issues, and the difficulties. And people sometimes come into interviews almost apologizing for the fact they don't have any problems going on right now. And I say, that, you know, sorry about that, you know. I'll work on getting a bit more suffering, but, you know, can you call me tomorrow? I haven't quite got any right now. But I'll look, I'll try and see. And, and it's, it's almost like pulling teeth sometimes to ask people to say, well, tell me about your good qualities. Tell me about the, the positive things that are happening in your practice, what you appreciate in your experience right now. Why is it so hard? Why is that so hard? In this vein, I had an interesting experience in America a couple of years ago when I was a, a resident teacher at the Insight Meditation Society and uh, we were going on a staff outing to the beach and the previous time we'd attempted to go to the beach it had rained all day and we hadn't um, even managed to get into our swimming costumes. So this day it was a beautiful sunny day and uh, at this point in the day, having had a wonderful meal and surrounded by wonderful people, I was lying in my swimming trunks on the beach, bathing in this beautiful warm sunshine and these rays touching almost every square millimetre of my body and just beautiful, warm, pleasant sensations. Apart from one small square millimetre where a fly, a biting fly, had decided to have its lunch. And it's so fascinating. There it is. The whole body is experiencing beautiful, wonderful, pleasurable experience. But where does the attention go? To that one square millimetre that has a itchy, unpleasant sensation going on. And there's something about our minds. There's something about our minds that, and at one way, we are repelled by the pain and the difficulty of life. And another way, we are attracted to it. Because we feel compelled to try and do something about it. We feel compelled to try and fix it. And yet, no part of me thought it had to do something about fixing that other 99% that was in the sunshine that was probably going to end up getting sunburnt and cause me a lot more suffering. But the mind doesn't seem to work like that unless we really pay careful attention to it. And we can also have almost a fear that, that if, we, if we, and particularly having heard Dharma teachings sometimes, that if we connect with that which is pleasurable, if we allow ourselves to be exposed to that which does bring joy, that we'll get attached will get entangled and it will just cause us more suffering. So we'd better stay well away from that nice stuff, thank you very much. And sometimes even the way the teachings of the Buddha are translated would give support to that. But it's as important as it is to learn to deal with the difficulty and the negativity of our life. It's just as important to, deal, to learn to deal and be with the positive, the sweet and the joyful, with skillful balance. Not just habitually and in our conditioned reactive way, which does have to do with grasping and with identifying with and inflating our ego around it, but actually learning to be with it skillfully so that it nourishes our being, nourishes our practice and our lives. So the art of cultivating, of connecting with joy, with that which brings joy, it, it's allowing ourselves to receive it when it comes, not seeking always to pursue it 
not feeling that it has to be there all the time. But when it comes, allowing ourselves to be touched, allowing ourselves to be moved, to feel the warmth and the moisture, the sweetness of those moments where we do deeply connect with something, where it does bring us joy. And to see that we do not need to hold on to the experience, to the experience that has brought that moment, that sense of joy, nor to the joy itself, that we don't need to take hold of it as me or mine, but simply to honour it as part of what we are being offered, part of what is received in this life. Because if we do grasp at it, if we do identify with it and claim it as our own and try and keep hold of it, then it just leads to contraction and suffering. But if we can be touched by it, if we can allow ourselves to touch and be touched by this life, then it's actually transforming. It's profoundly and radically transforming. Blake once said, He who binds himself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But he who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. She who binds herself to a joy does the winged life destroy. But she who kisses the joy as it flies lives on in eternity's sunrise. So what might it mean to kiss the joy as it flies? And how might that be an invitation to live in eternity's sunrise? Opening to the touch of the joyful, opening to the joy that is in life, without needing to hold on to it, without meeting it from a fear of lack that makes us feel we must keep hold of it, we must not lose it, we must prevent its passing. To meet the joyful from that place is to meet it from a place of balance, a place where we understand that joy and sorrow have their place in this world and through understanding not just one of them but both, we can transform our lives. Khalil Gibran and the Prophet said once, If you could keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life, your pain would not seem less wondrous than your joy. To keep your heart in wonder at the daily miracles of your life. To think what that would mean, that the miracles of this life that we have. Have you walked in the grounds and just seen a flower or a dewdrop? Heard the call of a bird? And just sometimes we feel the touch of it. There's something amazing. We can't quite articulate it. We don't quite know what it's saying to us with our minds. But something in us resonates. And it may just be a flicker, a flash, for a moment. Or maybe it doesn't happen. 
And maybe it's in other ways. Maybe we remember the eyes of a newborn child and the innocence and the, the gaze that just meets us as though we're part of it, that sees no separation. Or the, or the miracle of our breath that just keeps coming and that in the moment it stops, so do we. And, and we, we just, perhaps are just touched by this, this wonderful life that we're in the midst of. And in being touched with that wonder, we find our own capacity to open to the pain and the sorrow of it all as well. And in being able to open to the pain, to the sorrow of life, which is part of it, which we do talk about in practice, because we do need to understand. But in opening to that as part of our life, and opening equally to the joyful, we find that we come into harmony with it. We're no longer feeling that there's something wrong with it, that there's something we need to fix. And we start to see that these things are linked, are are connected, are interrelated so closely that we cannot separate them. And again, from Khalil Gibran, he speaks of these beautiful metaphors of joy and sorrow. And he says, Is not the cup that holds your wine the very clay that was burned in the potter's oven? And is not the lute that soothes your spirit the very wood that was hollowed with knives. And our very capacity for joy is totally interrelated with our capacity to also experience pain. And that in opening to them both, we open to life. We open to an okayness, a, a profound, a transforming, and yet a very ordinary and simple sense of okayness. That things are just okay. That we're not any longer in the grip of fear and anxiety. We're not under pressure from a need to control and to manipulate our experience in order to make it right, in order to fix it. That there's a a contentment with the simplicity, with the actuality of our life when we're not in the grip of fear, when we're not in the grip of desire, when we're actually quite naturally present, as we are, when those forces are not working upon us. And in that natural presence, there is a natural joy that's rather quiet, that's not shouting from the treetops or dancing a jig, but it's a joy of lightness and ease, of balance, and and the, the profound suchness of things, the profound suchness of things that are just as they are. And when we, when we start to touch this sense of things just as they are, things just being okay, not perfect, not the way I want them, not the way they told me they should be, but just as they are we start to sense a perhaps deeper and more profound possibility. There's a story told in the Buddhist tradition of a a poor Brahmin who lived in India many years ago 
And this Brahmin had an ox. He'd had the ox since it was a small calf and he'd raised it and cared for it. And The ox was a great companion and a friend ploughing his fields and playing with his children. And he named this ox Great Joy. One day when he was sitting despairing over his finances and realizing that he was losing slowly the battle with the, with the um, economics of his life and unable to afford to educate his children and provide a dowry for his daughter. He heard this voice from outside of his simple dwelling saying, Brahman, oh Brahman. And he looked out. It was the ox. He was amazed. The ox was speaking to him. And Great Joy said, oh Brahman, I see you have difficulties. But if you trust in me, your problems will be solved. And quite unable to believe what was happening, the Brahman said, what, what? Tell me. And Great Joy said, Brahman, go into the marketplace and make a bet with one of the merchants. Bet the merchant that I can pull 1,000 carts full of stones and rocks. It's not possible, said the Brahman. No ox can do that. Just trust me, said Great Joy. So the Brahman, not quite knowing what he was doing, went into the marketplace and uh, sat down in the place where the, the merchants and the wealthy dealers and traders would hang out and started speaking to one of the, one of the mayor, saying, you know, I have an ox. You have an ox, said the merchant. Well, I have hundreds of ox. Well, my ox is special, said the Brahman. My ox is very strong. Oxen are strong, that's their nature, said the merchant. What are you talking about? I have an ox so strong it can pull 1,000 carts full of stones and rubble. Don't give me that, said the merchant. I don't believe you for a minute. No ox can do that. It's totally outside the range and realm of possibility. You're making it up. I'm not, said the Brahman, and in fact, I'll bet you 1,000 pieces of silver that this is so. Okay, done, said the merchant. Bring your ox tomorrow. I'll provide the carts of rubble and we'll see what's to be, what's to be decided. The next day, the Brahman, having not slept at all for the whole night, worrying, wondering, fearful, anxious, leads great joy to the marketplace in the village. And there great joy is, has a vast wooden yoke placed upon his shoulders, these vast cables of rope attached to 1,000 carts full of stones and rubble. And all the villagers are there and everyone's excited and, and the Brahmin, suddenly overwhelmed with fear and anxiety, goes up to great joy with a stick and starts hitting him and saying, go, go you bull, go now, come on, pull these carts. You brute, pull them, I said. And great joy doesn't move. And he stands there, despite everything the Brahmin says and does, yelling and abusing. And eventually he realizes that great joy is not going to pull the carts. And totally distraught, shattered in fact, he unhitches the ox, he pays the merchant every last penny that he had, which was that thousand pieces of silver, and he goes home. And when he gets home he says to great joy, how could you do that? How could you let me down in that way? I'm totally ruined. I'm penniless. I'll have to go and beg for money. And Great Joy said, Tell me, Brahman, have I ever let you down before? Have I ever done you any harm? Have I ever hurt you? No, you haven't, said the Brahman. 
then why did you yell at me? Why did you hit me? Why did you abuse me? And rather crestfallen, the Brahman realized that in fact it was he who had let great joy down. It was he who was to blame. And great joy looked at him, understanding his contrition, and said, go back to the market, speak to that merchant again, bet him 2,000 pieces of silver, that I will pull 1,000 carts through the marketplace. And so the Brahmin goes back, and the merchant's rather delighted to hear this proposition. I see you haven't learned, he said, I'm rather looking forward to enriching himself rather easily. And so, it's rather a long story, but I'm trying to keep it short. Um, <laughs> the uh, Brahmin appears the next day with great joy, and great joy is hitched up to the, to the carts. And this time the Brahmin brings a, a wreath full of flowers, places it on his shoulders. says, great joy, I know you can do it. And great joy's muscles started to flex. As you could see this, this power, this presence within him just start to gather. And all the villagers and the merchant and the Brahmin stood there in awe as this beast, this ox, leaned into the yoke, leaned on the ropes, and the cart started to tremble and judder, and then they moved just slowly, and then they sped up, and then they were rolling, and great joy took them for a, a rapid trot right around the village and back, and arrived, <laughs> looked at the merchant, the Brahmin looked at the merchant, and to shorten the story, of course the the Brahmin, the Brahmin's finances were, financial situation were solved, and the 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 ox and the Brahmin went home and lived presumably happily ever after. And the story, I think, for me. There's something really powerful in what those, what those voices, what they represent for us. What that, that sense of possibility might mean for us. The voice, the voice of great joy is the voice we hear in ourselves that speaks to us of possibilities that may be beyond what anyone else would believe of us, what we ourselves would believe possible for us. And that part of ourselves which denies it, which is afraid, which is anxious, and in its fear and anxiety seeks to put pressure on ourselves, that yells at ourselves, that gives us a hard time trying to encourage us to discover that possibility, to realize our potential. This is the frightened Brahman, of course. And when we actually can come to that voice of our possibilities, when we can meet that sense within ourselves, that perhaps is what brought us to this very situation that keeps us here in the midst of it all. When we can actually meet that sense of possibility with a quality of appreciation, with a sense of kindness to perhaps bring the wreath of flowers, to place it on our neck, the appreciation of our possibility, the trust in that capacity that comes when we balance when we balance what we attend to, equally appreciating what is possible as what is difficult. In this, we connect with a possibility, with a potential that can be realized for us, that can be discovered within us, in this and in any and each moment. That our freedom, 
our understanding, the, the realization of the wisdom and compassion, which is our potential and our birthright, is not far removed from us, is not distant from us. And even if we might not quite see how that might be, or what that might involve to realize, to discover, staying connected with that, with that sense of potential, with the great joy that arises in our being, when we simply allow ourselves to listen to that voice which speaks of possibility. That joy that speaks from a place of simply being with just what is, with a genuine interest to explore, to discover, to see what might be revealed. And in this way, joy is seen and understood to not be an end point, a destination of our path, but equally part of each step and part of the process itself in which we are engaged. That great joy in our hearts is actually a natural and ordinary condition. Not necessarily something that we have to shout about, but something rather simple, something perhaps more familiar to us and closer to us than we realize. So could we just sit quietly for a minute or two, please? May all beings live with kindness. May all beings be touched by joy. May all beings realize their heart's freedom. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.